Hello and welcome to the latest episode in the Oz Movie Geek podcast. I'm your host, Pado. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss another episode down below and rate the podcast as well if you haven't already. I have noticed increased traction over the last couple of weeks and I can't thank you guys enough. It's been awesome. Um, yeah, it's great and I'm hoping to get more content to you more frequently. I finally got a nice little routine happening, so hopefully I can keep that up. And I'll have a few bonus reviews every now and then when I want to review different movies. Fire Vision Entertainment have lent me copies of uh, The Last of the Mohicans and Robin Hood Prince of Thieves on Blu-ray. Uh, so I'll be reviewing those ones in the next couple of weeks, as well as my Halloween hangover reviews of Jeepers Creepers 3 and Victor Crowley, thanks to Eagle Entertainment. So look forward to those ones, guys. But this week, I have had the chance to watch two new films. Um, the first being the long-awaited adaptation of Stephen King's 2012 novel, Doctor Sleep. Written, directed, and edited by Mike Flanagan, one of my favorite filmmakers in Hollywood at the moment. So I'm excited to talk about that. And... 47 Meters Down Uncaged. I don't think anyone was really awaiting this film, so we'll get into that as well. But I'm also debuting a new segment at the end of this episode. I am being sent a lot of Blu-rays from various companies, which I have mentioned. So I want to talk about these in each episode because there's so many of them and so many uh, films that I want to talk about. It's sort of hard to find the time to do both. So I thought, why not incorporate it in each episode? So... The new segment will be called Blu-ray of the Week. I'll discuss the movie and the Blu-ray in general, some of the special features, how the Blu-ray transfer of the film looks. A lot of these films are older films, so it's a nice way for me to talk about that. Um, and I'll discuss the film um, on a surface level because I don't want to spoil too many aspects because some of these are classics and I don't want to ruin it for you guys. Uh, this week's Blu-ray of the Week is David Cronenberg's 1983 classic Videodrome, which stars James Woods. And yeah, I'm excited to talk about that, so stay tuned for that at the end of the episode. But, nevertheless, let's get stuck into it. Like I said, I saw two movies this week, and the first one I'll be talking about is Doctor Sleep. So let's get stuck into it. Doctor Sleep, like I mentioned, was written for the screen, edited and directed by Mike Flanagan, based on the 2012 Stephen King novel, and stars Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Kylie Curran, Emily Aylan Lind, and Cliff Curtis. And the plot follows years after the events of The Shining, and now adult uh, Dan Torrance meets a young girl with similar powers as he tries to protect her from a cult known as the True Knot, who prey on children with powers to remain immortal. Eat well, live long, as they say. This was one of the most anticipated films for me this year, it being a Stephen King adaptation who I absolutely adore, and a book that I actually really love. Um, it was narrated by, or read by, uh, Will Patton on the audiobook, and this is no means a product placement for um, for Audible at all, but I did thoroughly enjoy that novel, and I was interested to see, with the right director behind the project, how it would translate to the big screen. Um, I'm a huge fan of The Shining. The Shining is my favourite horror film of all time. I haven't talked about that film yet. I'm hoping to do a review of it one day, but I'm waiting for the opportune moment. But it is a fantastic horror film. It is so well directed, well acted. I am a fan of the book as well, but I do think Stanley Kubrick, with the original film, was able to cut the fat, essentially. Uh, Stephen King is a fantastic writer, but he does tend to bog down some of the story details and focus more heavily on 
I suppose, the setup of a scene or a sequence in the book. And there's a lot of back and forth in that film that does feel unnecessary. And I think Stanley Kubrick was able to cut all that out and streamline it whilst not getting rid of the crux of the novel. Um, and Mike Flanagan, like I said, is my favorite uh, horror director working today, but also one of the best directors working in Hollywood at the moment. Um, if you haven't seen his catalogue of films and television, he's directed Oculus, Hush, Gerald's Game, Before I Wake, Ouija Origin of Evil, and the fantastic eight episodes of Haunting of Hill House, which if you haven't seen that show, is masterful. One of the best standalone television shows I've ever seen. It is just phenomenal. So do yourselves a favour and check out all those films if you haven't. Um, but nevertheless, I was excited for this film. So how was Doctor Sleep? I can honestly say Doctor Sleep was my favourite film or is currently my favourite film of 2019 thus far. I absolutely adore this film. I think it is well helmed, it is well acted and it's just a perfect storm of the right elements executed on screen and I absolutely adore this film. I can't wait to talk about it. So let's get stuck into the positives. The first one is the obvious one, probably the most obvious thing that I can discuss for this film and that's Mike Flanagan's direction. He directs the hell out of this movie. This is a gorgeous looking film with beautiful long takes, well-directed sequences of terror and suspense. He's worked with The Gerald's Game um, and Ouija Origin of Evil, Before I Wake, Oculus and Haunting of Hill House. Um, director of photography, Michael Filmagani, uh, I think is how you say his name. I'm sorry if I've mispronounced that. Um, but... The way that he composes the shots are just beautiful. Those beautiful wide shots, long takes um, that just capture everything in the scene and it's just so beautiful to look at. And it's hard to just sit back and say that. It's something you need to see for yourself. And it's just the way that he composes these shots and it's just really beautiful to look at. And I think that Flanagan's continual work with Mike Filamangari, if I am saying that correctly, is honestly next to none and one of the best duos in Hollywood at the moment as far as director of photography and uh, director. And yeah, it is a gorgeous looking film. It's such a crisp and, cre uh, and clean looking film. I was going to say cream, makes no sense. Um, yeah, crisp and clean looking film. It is just, it's got this blue tinge almost over the, um, the film stock and it just looks beautiful. It, yeah, it's fantastic. So go and see it just for that alone. Um, the scares are not overbearing as well in the film, and I think this is due to Mike Flanagan's direction again. It feels like it's a lot more methodical, and it's not bombastic and loud. As it's more somber and quiet, which is what we're not used to as horror fans these days, because I don't want to just blame the Conjuring Universe films, but they have had a lot to do with that, and it's just those loud and bombastic jump scares that definitely deflate any tension at all. Um, rather, here, it is just slow, built-up tension. There's a great sequence at the beginning of the film of Danny in his home, and uh, he wets himself after the events of uh, what happened in The Shining at the... Um, yeah, in, in, in the events of The Shining. It sort of takes place directly after those events, and he's at home, and he sees the woman from room uh, 237 uh, in the bathtub, and she's reaching over like she did in the... Um, in the original film and yeah Danny wets himself but it was the way that it was shot and the way that it was composed there wasn't any there was a loud noise but it wasn't a loud noise to 
implicate a jump scare. It was more of a loud noise to implicate terror and what Danny's feeling. So it's a different way of doing that. And I think the way that it was used was fantastic. And yeah, it's just an example of how these scenes are set up during the film. Uh, the cast. Ewan McGregor is honestly fantastic as Danny Torrance. I believed him as a grown-up Danny Torrance. Uh, he's damaged and conveys the troubles of his past so well. You feel his pain and his conflicted nature regarding Abra, who is played by Kylie Curran, who I also thought was fantastic. Uh, she has these powers and, yeah, it was just the way that it explored the idea of The Shining too. We see a lot more of what these gifted people can do and what The Shining is, essentially. We got an overview in the original film, but here it's explored a little more, and I really enjoyed that aspect of the film. And I thought Carly Curran was fantastic. Um, you always get a bit worried when you see a child actor in a film because if they're not great, then it is going to detract a little from the film. But here she is fantastic. She has a lot of screen time, and she's really, really good, so... Props to her, and I can't wait to see more of her in future films. Um, her relationship with Danny, or Uncle Dan, as she comes to call him as well, was fantastic. I really liked their dynamic, and I think it was just conveyed well. Two actors working together who understand each other, and yeah, it was just done really well. Rebecca Ferguson as well blew me away here. Um, her villainous turn as Rose the Hat is probably my favorite villain of 2019. Now, I'm just excusing why Queen Phoenix is Joker because it's unparalleled and his performance and work in that film is masterful. But here, Rebecca Ferguson is menacing, she's terrifying, and she's strong. So you understand, I think, where she's coming from whilst it's not conveyed in a more traditional sense. Just as you get to know her, she's just pure evil and she is selfish but also wants to help the people like her as well this cult of, of sorts and yeah it's just the way that she conveyed her emotion as well I thought was very well done and I thought she was terrific in the film the story as well like I said I listened to the audiobook of this um, novel when it not when it originally came out it was only a couple of years ago that I listened to the um, the audible version of uh, Dr. Sleep but um, Flanagan adapts the novel wonderfully um, it doesn't really shy away from the more absurd moments of the novel. Uh, the novel gets very strange and it goes completely off the rails, but um, Stephen King sells it with his writing, of course, because he's just a masterful author. But here, Flanagan is able to assure the, um, the audience by using the... I suppose the scope, the scenery and the situation and grounding it so it doesn't feel absurd by giving us these realistic characters, it sells the drama and sells it, it sells the story and I think they did a really good job um, doing that and I thought it was terrific honestly um, and I think he also pays enough respects to Kubrick's film without being too overbearing and over the top. Um, he also... Um, uses those elements sparingly but also uses them at the right moment and I think that's what differentiates what bad fan service is and good fan service which I'll touch on a bit further but I think yeah that that's the way that um, Flanagan's able to work use what Kubrick did well here and amplify it and also use what King did well and amplify that as well and I think he does a really good job uh, the use of silence. Uh, you have heard me harp on about this for a very long time, and that's the use of silence in horror films or film in general. 
Um, silence is used very well here, but it's also a technique that needs to be used accordingly. You don't want overbearing silence because sometimes it can detract from the film and it makes it feel lifeless. Here, silence acts as almost another character and I really enjoy that. Um, like in The Shining, um, which is always hailed as one of the best scores of all time, but it's not really a loud score. It's very somber and quiet and it's used very sparingly. But we have here um, a sounds and a score that it's used very sparingly and I think that's why I enjoyed it as much as what I do. Um, the Newton brothers here who composed the film understand completely what made The Shining score so effective and prolific. And it's simple. It's just used sparingly and I think it's done really well here. We get so many nice and quiet moments of characters talking, uh, characters walking down hallways and that sort of thing and it just builds tension so well. Um, Flanagan also knows when to use sound as well. He did this in uh, Haunting of Hill House. The episode, The Two Storms, um, which is the famous one-take episode between the two timelines, and there is no barely any sound in that film apart from the storm outside and our characters talking and it just makes the tension feel so much more real and I absolutely adored the way that he used silence in that uh, series but here he, he brings that skill back to film and I yeah I absolutely adored it because I just love the use of silence because I think it's very effective and it gives the audience a chance to dwell on what they're seeing and what they're hearing and focus more on the visual aspects of the film but also focusing on the character's dialogue as well and I just thought it was done really well. There's a scene in particular that this was used to perfection but I won't touch on that until after I give my verdict because I don't want to spoil anything. Um, the tie-ins uh, to The Shining as well I thought were handled very very well. Uh, this is fan service done right. It is effective and well done. Instead of de-aging the actors, we just have other actors playing these characters again, which was wonderful. Um, a staple in all of Mike Flanagan's films thus far is him using the same actors across different films. We get a nice little appearance from Jacob Tremblay, um, which is the first time I've seen a child cameo in something. I don't know if that's a thing, but Jacob Tremblay, of course, is quite a big actor at the moment. Um, he was in... Um, the Predator last year and Good Boys this year and he's doing a lot of uh, big things as an actor in Hollywood and he's only quite young but um, he, he appears here but also Henry Thomas appears as Jack Torrance as well which was a really good casting choice actually. He does a believable job playing Jack. Um, we only see him from side on and then the recreation of the staircase sequence as well um, in a very brief um, couple of shots but I think they did really well to cast Henry Thomas here and I thought he sold it and it was really refreshing as well to see actual actors playing these younger characters rather than de-aging the actors and that's nothing against the de-aging technology because at the moment that technology looks better than it ever has. Um, I mentioned it in my Terminator review. In Terminator Dark Fate the de-aging effects were seamless. I honestly couldn't tell that they were de-aging effects. If you had told me that was Linda Hamilton from 1984 would have believed you because that's what it looked like and it looked fantastic but I really enjoyed the way that um, they used real actors here because it just added to the film for me personally um, and I thought they were all really great and it was just refreshing to see. Um, 
I also like the recreations of classic scenes from The Shining. We have the uh, hallway scene of little Danny Torrance on the on the trike riding through the hallways of the Overlook Hotel. Um, we have the elevator scene as well with the blood rushing from the uh, from the uh, elevator, which is a classic, of course. Um, and we also have uh, the recreation of the classic um, stairway scene, like I said. And I think it was just done really well, and I really enjoyed the way that it was filmed. And I like that Flanagan play, paid his respects to both Kubrick and King without feeling offensive to either one of them. As we know, King hates the adaptation of The Shining. He really doesn't like it. I don't know why, because I think it elevates his material so much more. But it's a personal preference, and obviously Stephen King is very protective of that story. But his opinion in that regard does not mean a lot to me, because if you haven't seen Maximum Overdrive, which he directed, it is a terrible film, and I don't think he understands the logistics of filmmaking. He's a great storyteller, but filmmaking is a completely different world. But that's just a little little bit on that and when I review The Shining one day I'll get into that. Uh, this film is edited to perfection as well. It's such a tightly edited film and that's insane for me to say because it is 150 minutes long but another um, staple in Mike Flanagan films is that he does edit his own films which I think is something that directors should look at a bit more often because the director is able to say what they want, what they don't want in the film. And I think Mike Flanagan doing this, he is able to create 100% the product that he wants to create. As he was a writer, director, editor, and producer of this film, I think it's safe to say that he got to make the film he wanted to make. I don't think we'd ever get a director's cut of that. Um, there was a director's cut recently released of The Haunting of Hill House, and I don't know what Netflix's influence was on um, Mike Flanagan's TV show there. I'm not 100% certain. I haven't picked it up yet on Blu-ray, but I'm hoping I will get a chance to. But I think um, what Flanagan does well here is that he doesn't take away from the story and lets it play out the way that he wants it to play out. We get the absurd moments. We get the touching moments. We get everything here, and I think everything needs to be here. I don't see any scene, um, and I, of course I have only watched this film once, but I haven't seen a scene in that run through that needed to be taken out. It was tightly edited. It didn't feel like it's a 150 minute uh, runtime. It just played very well. And um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the way it was edited. Very well done. Uh, the only potential criticism I see for this film is that people may have an issue with the third act. Um, it feels like it is a bit overbearing with fern uh, fan service. And I can understand people feeling that that does detract from the film. But to me personally, it was important to the story and I really enjoyed it. And I think because of how tastefully it was done, that it didn't detract from the film at all for me. It just felt like an elevation. Um, it was something I wanted to see. And going back to the Overlook um, Hotel makes complete and utter sense. And it gives closure to Denny's character as well. And because of how damaged he is, I really enjoyed the closure we get uh, with him, which I'll touch on briefly after I give my verdict for the film. But... I don't have any actual criticisms with this film. Uh, yes, it's not overbearing with scares, but it really doesn't need to be because it's that entertaining and that good of a film that, yeah, if it had no scares at all, I would have been completely fine with it. Um, my verdict. Doctor Sleep is my favourite film of 2019 thus far. Like I said, I only have seen it once, but Mike Flanagan's assured direction and a fantastic cast make this one of the best I have seen in the cinema in 2019. This film gets a 10 out of 10 from me. 
my first of the year. I, if I went back, the only other film I would probably add a 10 out of 10 to would be Parasite. Um, I've seen it twice now, and I absolutely adore it. I've pre-ordered my Blu-ray for 2020. Um, but, yeah, Doctor Sleep is probably the best time I've had in a cinema this year. Um, it was a very quiet cinema, unfortunately. There was only six other people in there with myself and my mum that I went and saw the movie with, but it, which is kind of disappointing. So please go and see this movie because it really does deserve your attention. So like I said, I am going to spoil a little element of the film, but I did need to talk about this because I feel like it elevates the film a lot and it's something that I personally connected to as well. So if you don't want to hear it, that's your warning. Three, two, one. Um, my favorite scene of the film is a quiet scene that explores the idea of who Dr. Sleep is. Uh, Denny is working as an orderly for a local hospital. There is a cat that wanders the halls of the hospital named Azzy. Azzy wanders into a room where an elderly man is distressed. Denny asks if he wants to see a doctor, but he says the cats always know when it's their time to go. Uh, Denny calms him down and uses his shining ability to calm the man down and comfort him by going inside of his head so he's not audibly speaking to him, but rather speaking to him uh, telekinetically, I guess. Um, this is where the name Dr. Sleep is coined, as the man calls him Dr. Sleep. Um, and I thought this was a really beautiful scene. It was very quiet. There was no music. It was just the two characters talking to one another. And I think I just resonated quite a lot with it because of the way that it was executed. Um, it was quite sad, um, and I wasn't expecting that from this film. This scene is featured in the book, but um, yeah, it just didn't feel like... I guess what I expected um, it to appear like in the film, and I think Ewan McGregor really sold the scene, and I did find that emotional connection to that sequence in particular, and it was really touching. The other scene as well that I briefly touched on was um, the return of the Overlook Hotel. Uh, Danny is at the famous bar being served by Lloyd, but we know very well that it is Jack Torrance, um, played famously by Jack Nicholson, of course, in The Shining, but here is played by Henry Thomas, which I touched on. And those who don't know who Henry Thomas is, he's actually the kid Elliot from E.T., um, and he has featured in a number of Mike Flanagan's films. Um, more recently, he was the father in the uh, original timeline for Haunting of Hill House. Um, here, Danny confronts his father in an emotional but rewarding scene that I always wanted to see, I guess. Um, here, Jack is held accountable for his actions even before the Overlook Hotel. Jack was a damaged man, he was an alcoholic, and Denny calls him out on it. I really enjoyed that Denny got that closure there with his father, but also when he releases all the all the, um, the ghosts from the Overlook Hotel, because um, he's told at the start of the film that he can, you know, capture them in, in his head. He's able to um, use boxes to trap these ghosts so that they can't harm him. And he uses that, and then at the end of the film, that's how he gets rid of um, Rebecca Ferguson's uh, character, um, Rose the Hat. And I really enjoyed that. I just thought it was yeah, really, really cathartic, and I enjoyed that he got his closure. Um, he have unfortunately passes away in, at the end of the film. Danny sacrifices himself um, for uh, Abra's character, and I, I just enjoyed that we, we got that closure of his character, and now he is... Um, he's at peace and he can rest now. And I just, I thought that it was done really well and it made 
it made me realize that this is the story that I wanted to see. And I just thought to myself, I'm glad that we got this because not a lot of directors would want to take on this source material because it is absurd. And Stephen King is very protective of his source material, as we know, because of his dislike of The Shining. Um, but I just really enjoyed the way that that, I suppose, has played into the overall, uh, the overarching um, themes of the film. And then at the end of the film, we get a nice moment where uh, Danny is still um, speaking with Abra in her room. And yeah, it, it was just a nice little little character moment too. And I just, I really enjoyed that he got his his closure, but he's also acting as this vice for um, Abra at the end of the film. And um, yeah, it gives her comfort too, because she is a bit of a loner. And yeah, her father's just passed away too. So it was just really nice. I also didn't touch very much on Cliff Curtis in the film. Uh, Cliff Curtis uh, was fantastic. He recently showed up as uh, the Rock's brother in Hobbs and Shaw. Um, and I thought, oh, you're so much better than this, Cliff. Like, you were in the Meg last year and you're okay, but you need to be in better projects because you're such a good actor. And his brief role in Fear the Walking Dead I always really enjoyed. Um, and I'm glad that he was given a bit more screen time here. He's such a loving man in this film. Uh, he gives Danny a chance. And that was just a really warming aspect of the film I really enjoyed. He gives him a job. He gives him a place to stay. And he helps him out and helps him get back on his feet. Uh, Bruce Greenwood also shows up in this film, uh, of course, uh, partnered with Mike Flanagan in Gerald's Game, doing his best New York accent, um, which I found quite quite funny. Uh, but yeah, he was really good in the film too, and I enjoyed seeing him. And like I said, it's nice putting these little connective dots. It's like he's giving you Easter eggs for his other films, and I really enjoy that. And I cannot wait to see what Mike Flanagan's doing next. Apparently, he's doing a TV show... Um, another TV show. It's a seven-episode series about a group of people stuck on an island and weird things start to happen when a young priest turns up. Uh, sounds very bizarre, but at this point, he has not directed a bad film. His worst film, in my opinion, is Before I Wake, and even that film I really enjoy because the performances uh, elevate the material a lot in that film. Um, and yeah, I'm interested to see where he goes from here because this is the peak of his filmmaking, in my opinion. Um, I think Haunting of Hill House is probably a better example of storytelling just because it's given that eight episodes to breathe. But as far as his film library, um, this would probably be his best film, um, closely followed by Gerald's Game, the other Stephen King adaptation that he did. But yeah, I think he's phenomenal. So that's Dr. Sleep. Please go and check this film out because it is worth your time. It is such an enjoyable film and I absolutely adored it and I cannot wait to go and see it. I'm probably going to go and see it again next week. Um, and I have, yeah, I've had such a great time watching it and I can't wait to see it again. So let's get stuck into 47 meters down uncaged. Oh boy. 47 meters down uncaged was written and directed by Johannes Roberts and stars Sophie Nelise, Corinne Fox, Brianne Tejoux, Sistine Stallone and John Colbert and follows four teenage girls who go diving in a ruined underwater city who quickly learn they enter the territory of the deadliest shark species in the claustrophobic labyrinth of submerged caves. The sharks are also blind. Um, so for those who don't know, I'm a big shark movie fan. I don't know what it is about shark movies, but I have a soft spot for them. Call them guilty pleasures, call them whatever you want, I guess I just enjoy them. Jaws, the original Jaws from 1976, is probably my most watched film of all time. I've watched that film 
just a ridiculous amount of times and I wouldn't be able to tell you how many times I've watched it, but I just love that film. Great characters, great story, great storytelling and just a really good film. Um, the Jaws sequels, Jaws 2 is kind of good. It's a bit of an underrated sequel. Jaws 3 sucks. Jaws the Revenge sucks, but hey, I own them all on Blu-ray because I'm a shark fanatic apparently. Um, I also enjoyed The Meg last year. It was probably one of my favorite blockbuster films of the year, which is crazy to say, but I actually really enjoyed it. Uh, the Shallows, I'm not a huge fan of that film, but at the same time, I do own it again. The Deep Blue Sea films, I actually love Deep Blue Sea 1. It's a terrible, terrible film, but I really enjoy watching it. And Deep Blue Sea 2, um, it's not fantastic, but I own it again. And Shark Night, another film that came out in 2011, I believe, uh, starring Sarah Paxton. Um, and that is a very bad film, um, directed by the late David R. Ellis, but it's a bad film. It, it's terrible. But I really enjoy that film because of how bad it is too. It's such a ridiculous plot and the execution's kind of iffy. But yeah, and even the first 47 meters down, I own that film too. I don't love it necessarily, but I do enjoy shark films. So my expectations for 47 meters down uncaged were, I want you to be entertainingly bad. I don't necessarily expect you to be decent, but I expect you to be on a level of entertainment that other films will not give me. Uh, Crawl this year, I was hoping for the same thing, but Crawl ended up being a decent horror film where this is pretty fucking terrible. So we'll get stuck into it. First, I want to address the title of the movie. The movie is called 47 Meters Down Uncaged. Now, we assume that it's called 47 Meters Down because this is now a brand. Um, They can't market it as underwater cave diving blind sharks. They, They can't call it that. I don't know why, it's pretty catchy, but apparently 47 Meters Down is now a brand. So Johannes Roberts, the director of this film, has put himself in the situation where he is directing 47 Meters Down Uncaged, uh, which is a sequel in title alone and kind of concept, um, but none of the returning characters are here. There's no relation to the first film apart from the title. Um, they're not 47 meters down. That was my irritation with the title. I reckon they're about 25 to 30 meters down. You know, I don't have my tape measure, neither do they in the film, so I'm not entirely sure where we're at as far as how many meters underwater we are, but hey, that's just a little gripe. Uncaged as well. Is it because they're not in a cage like they are in the first film? Is that why they're called Uncaged? I, I don't actually know why this film is called Uncaged. Is it because the sharks are now uncaged, but at the same time they're in caves so is it they're uncaved bit of a pun (laughs) i don't know and this movie is just it's baffling to me so the story about 47 meters down the first film was that it was originally filmed for straight to vod um, by entertainment studios but then they thought hey why don't we release this at the end of summer make a quick buck and yeah see what happens instead of just releasing it straight to dvd and straight to vod and straight to blu-ray so they did that And the film made a quick buck, so now we have a sequel. And this movie is terrible. Um, Johannes Roberts, the writer and director of this film, is not a terrible filmmaker, but he has, at the moment, directed one good scene in four of his films that I've seen. That's not a good track record, Johannes. If you are listening to this, (laughs) mate, I don't understand. I really don't understand. 
We'll go through his filmography first. The Other Side of the Door is a unique concept. He directed this film in 2016, and I do own it on Blu-ray as well, which is very strange of me to do. I actually own all of his films on Blu-ray. I don't know if that means I'm a Johannes Roberts fan, but um, yeah, we'll get we'll get into that. Um, so The Other Side of the Door is a unique concept, and I like the production design on that, and I think that's one thing I can give him for his films is he does have a nice-looking set, and a good-looking atmosphere that he creates in his films. So, The Other Side of the Door is terrible, but it has good atmosphere. I also like the cast in that film. Then we have 47 Meters Down. Like I said, it's a guilty pleasure. It's no by no means a good film. I hate the ending of that film. I won't get into that here, but I fucking hate the ending of that movie. It gives me the utter shits. It is not good. Uh, then he directed Strangers Pray at Night last year, the sequel to the Strangers film that came out in 2007. Um... I enjoy one scene in that film that I think is actually well shot. Um, it's well made and it's well acted. We have Lewis Pullman from my favorite film of the last year, not Strangers Pray at Night, um, believe it or not, um, but Bad Times at the El Royale. Lewis Pullman is being chased by one of the strangers and he's in a pool um, and the he's injured and the stranger is trying to kill him and it's uh, to the track uh, Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. Well shot. Uh, well executed so bravo to you sir but now we are a year a year later and you're directing 47 meters down uncaged so let's get stuck into this film i have a bit to say and i think it's time to talk about it so what do i like i actually have a few positives to this film some of the underwater photography and cinematography is well done i'm a sucker for underwater cinematography i think if it's done well it is very good and yeah i an example of this in a bad film was Sanctum, James Cameron, the Australian film that came out a few years ago, uh, had fantastic underwater photography and cinematography. It looked gorgeous, but the film itself sucked. But we did have a nice-looking film. And, yeah, that was one of the aspects of this film that I really enjoyed. I think some of the underwater production as well is really well done. We have really nice-looking sets, um, which is a... a Props to Johannes Roberts and his team. Um, and I think if you do a good job with these things in these conditions, um, I think you're doing a pretty good job in general because, I don't know, filming underwater is something that would be quite hard to do. I haven't done it outside using a GoPro before, so I imagine lugging around big uh, cameras to make a movie underwater is quite difficult. So props to Johannes Roberts and his team for doing that. I also like the sharks. Um, I love the look of the sharks. They're these white albino-looking sharks, and um, they're blind, like I mentioned at the start of the film. But I do have an issue with the sharks. I don't understand their ability to smell and sense movement in this film. So they're blind. They've adapted to live in these caves. I also don't know where they come from, but I'll get into that as well. Um They've adapted to the environment uh, down in these caves. We see that they are blind, but they also don't seem to see our characters or feel our characters or smell our characters when they're nearby. There's scenes where they're directly under them, screaming, kicking around and stuff. They're trying to keep as still as they can, but there's bubbles blowing up there. And I imagine the sharks would be quite aware that these people are underneath them, but they don't attack. And it happens multiple times during the film and it just confuses me. And then there's other scenes where they're jumping out of the water to eat people and just crazy stuff and it's not consistent. So I don't really understand that. 
I also don't understand how they're still alive. There's not a huge food supply in these caves. We see one other fish during this whole time that we're in these caves. A fish that also screams, but I'll get into that as well. And I just am confused as to how the logistics of these sharks work. They're not explained to us. I don't need them spoon-fed to us, but I need to at least understand why these sharks are doing what they're doing. Like, we understand they're hunters, I get that, but how are they still alive and how are they not sensing the people around them? I, I don't know enough about shark anatomy to answer my own questions, and I haven't done my research as to, you know, why the sharks in 47 meters down are doing what they're doing. But, yeah, I, it just confuses me a bit it's just the logistics and their actual purpose i suppose and i don't understand how they're still alive that's my biggest gripe there but let's get into the negatives uh pretty much everything else in the fucking film um the acting every single cast member in this film is bad uh there is not one redeeming actor uh john colbert i kind of thought was decent but at the same time he's pretty bad and he's not given a lot of screen time his death was pretty funny though um you know, they, they've escaped and the characters are trying to get out of this lift thing um, that's used to pull them out of the water. Um, they're all stuck in the water and the sharks have disappeared, but then we see the shark come out and eat him uh, when they think that they're all gone away, but out of nowhere, this shark comes up and eats him as he's giving an inspirational speech. It kind of reminded me of Deep Blue Sea, and I think that's what Johannes Roberts was going for, but I'm not entirely sure, so don't quote me on that. Um, but yeah, it was... Um, pretty unbearable to watch these girls interact with one another another thing with their interactions is these girls are all talking to each other during the film and that's fair enough maybe they have earpieces in oh that's right their ears are submerged in water during the whole film their masks cover just their face so i don't know how they're talking let alone hearing each other during this entire film it's such a small logistical thing but it could be easily fixed by having a mask that goes around their whole fucking face instead of just the front of their face and not their ears. I don't understand that at all. Um, maybe I missed something, but I definitely don't think I do, and I have heard another critic pointed out as well, so I don't think I'm alone here. Um, the jump scares. Uh, there was one effective scene that uses a jump scare in the film. It was the scene I was talking about where the sharks don't really understand um, not understand, they don't notice the, our characters underneath them. The shark's swimming around above them, but it was just the way that it happens. The girls are all arguing with one another, and then the shark out of nowhere comes out. There's a little jump scare noise, but it wasn't unbearable, and it, I jumped myself, so I found it quite effective. Normally those scenes I can see coming a mile away, and I didn't really see this one coming, so that was effective. Um, I, I thought the... Um, some of the jump scares were pretty terrible. Um, there was just some that felt very ineffective. I, I find jump scares in general ineffective, but I think for the most part during this film, they were just put in such easy opportunities. that They just felt very ridiculous, and I just didn't enjoy any of them at all, and I found it quite disappointing. Um I don't know, I just feel like tension is quite easily built in this scenario. We're in claustrophobic caves with sharks about. Do we really need that many jump scares? Of course we do, because teenagers watch these films, and apparently that's what's scary these days. Um, yeah, I, I just found it very irritating. Um, 
There was a scene that I mentioned before where his fish literally screams. Um, we find a, a... It's called a blind Mexican fish. I can't remember the actual name they give it. Um, but we see this fish swimming around and one of the girls is saying, oh, it's it's this fish um, and goes up to touch it. And when she goes up to touch it, the fish literally screams and a jump scare noise happens. And I was baffled. I was like, why is this fish screaming? I don't think fish have vocal cords. If they do, um, I'm sorry. But at the same time, I don't think the fish would be able to scream. And I found that very bizarre and it was such a weird weird scene I, I didn't really understand it um the ending as well it just kept going and going and going i just found the ending of this film it, it's like the film didn't know how to end i think that was the issue so the girls get out of the cave we have two survivors it's the two sisters or stepsisters and they've escaped from the caves and there's no sharks about so we think we also see them swim then towards a boat now, at the beginning of the film, the reason they go to the caves was their father gives them tickets to go to one of those um, boat... Um, those, it's like a shark-watching thing. It's the boats with the glass bottoms. So they've got, they were going on that, but they decided not to and ditch and go and have a look at the caves that their father's uncovering uh, in the middle of the, the bloody Mexican jungle. So they end up going into the caves and that's how the whole scenario happens but when they escape the caves the boat at the end of the film that they're swimming towards is actually the boat that they were meant to be on so there's a bit of dramatic irony there um, well done johannes roberts you put dramatic irony in your film and it is not good um and anyway the girls are swimming through blood and we think that one of them's injured but it turns out that it's the guy throwing the buckets full of chum in the water to attract the great white sharks and then it does a big aerial shot and we see that there's great white sharks all around these girls. Um, they're attacked multiple times in this scene. Uh, they go underwater at first. One of the girls is attacked by a shark. Uh, she escapes and they then swim up to the surface and everyone's aware that the girls are there. When it does the shot as well of them moving up towards the top of the boat, we also see that they're way further away than what they were when they were underwater. I don't know how that works. Do they swim away from the boat and then back to the boat? It feels kind of stupid if they did. Maybe they were getting away from the shark. It's not explained. It looks like just logistically it made no fucking sense. And I think it was an afterthought when in the editing room. So then they're swimming towards the boat. And uh, the stepsister, I'm going to call her the stepsister, um, she's attacked by the shark um, first. And she's um, escapes the shark's grasp. And then she gets pulled onto the boat because uh, the other girl, the sister, went and jumped in the water to save her and then she's attacked by the shark and it, it just went on and on and i was like what the fuck why is this happening they've escaped the sharks like what do we need them being attacked by the sharks again i was just so confused and i just didn't really understand why it kept happening and it kept it happened twice um and then the characters end up surviving and yeah they're not attacked by the sharks again thankfully i was expecting it to happen one more time where the shark jumps at the camera or something like in shark night 3d um but yeah, it didn't happen, which was a shame. But yeah, the ending of this film was just shocking. It was just surprising to me though because I, I thought that when they girls escaped that one of them was just going to get eaten by the shark and then they saw the boat and then the girls on the boat where she was meant to be all along and it's like the whole film didn't happen kind of thing. I was expecting something stupid like that because that's how the first film ends. 
I'm going to do spoilers now for the first film, but I've spoiled this film anyway, so it doesn't really matter. In 47 Meters Down, we have a fake-out ending where our main character looks like she's been saved, and then we find out that she's actually still at the bottom of the ocean, and it's just her brain playing tricks on her because she's run out of oxygen. It's honestly shockingly bad, and I hate that ending for that reason because it makes the last third of the movie irrelevant and doesn't matter because it didn't actually happen. And it's the biggest cop-out. I don't know if they thought it was clever, but it's not. It's really irritating, and it actually ruins the ending of that film because, for the most part, you have an entertaining thriller, and I enjoyed the setting and everything. Even the acting wasn't terrible. Matthew Modine's in the film, and if you add Matthew Modine to anything, it honestly elevates your material. So that film's ending was shocking, but this film, I think I hate this ending even more because of how many times that these girls are attacked by these sharks at the end of the film. It just seemed so stupid, and I just didn't really understand why it kept happening. It was just bizarre. It was repetitive more so than anything. It was funny. Don't get me wrong. I was laughing, but I shouldn't have been laughing. I should have cared about these girls, but I didn't because... They were terrible characters and they were all horrible people. So them getting attacked by sharks was a happy moment in a scene that should have been a sad or, you know, I don't know. It was just terrible. I'm done talking about this movie, so I'm going to give my verdict. 47 meters down uncaged, teeters on the line of so bad it's good and just plain terrible. Cliched scares, repetitious scenes and unlikable characters make this one one of the worst films of 2019. And I'm giving 47 Meters Down Uncaged a 2 out of 10. This is a really sporadic review and I've just realized that recording it. But at the same time, I don't know how else to talk about this film because looking at my notes, I have like a full review typed out here and I'm going through my notes. And it is honestly as sporadic as what I'm explaining it. It is so baffling. Uh, My friend and I that I went and saw this movie with came out of the cinema and were kind of in shock. I was bizarre that a big not a big budgeted film but a film of this level was still being made for cinemas these days like you don't see this level of incompetence in bigger budgeted uh, not not even horror movies just movies in general you get the occasional one that slips through the cracks i've been on my rant about x-men uh dark phoenix that's my first podcast that i did hellboy was the same too where i thought I don't understand why movies like this are still being made, but at the same time, these aren't incompetent films. They had redeeming factors about them, whereas 47 Meters Down Uncaged was honestly one of the worst films I have seen in quite some time. It gets the rating it does because I laughed and I found some enjoyment in it, but I don't think the filmmakers were trying to make a laughable film. I think they were trying to make a genuine, a genuine suspense thriller. But you don't really get that here. You get a very watered down... I, I don't even know. Like I'm, I'm losing brain cells talking about this. I You get a watered down thriller that has such incompetent filmmaking that it feels like it's an MTV original. It just felt just really baffling to me. And the film's sitting at a 52% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. And that just kind of blows my mind. I I won't be picking this one up on Blu-ray because I think that the first film is at least decent enough. But it's not a shark night where it's so bad that it's good. 
It's just a film that has some moments that teeter on the line of being so bad it's good, but it just, to me, feels like they were trying to make a genuine thriller, but instead they've made a really watered-down horror flick that doesn't have any suspenseful moments at all, and, yeah, has one of the worst endings I've seen all year, which just blows my mind. But again, it was quite funny to watch, so, yeah, I'm in two minds about this one. In regards to where it sits on the so bad it's good scale, I think it sits more on the terrible, boring and horrible scale more so than it sits on the so bad it's good. Like I said, I won't be picking this one up on Blu-ray to add to my shark movie collection, which is kind of a shame, but at the same time, make me laugh or make me at least feel something. And this film sort of left me feeling pretty empty. So yeah, that's 47 Meters Down Uncaged. If you listen to this and decide that you want to watch it, then that's on you. I have warned you against this film. And yeah, I I just don't think that it's it's appropriate for people to actually go and watch this because, yeah, it, it's just not a good film. Um, but yeah, that's 47 Meters Down Uncaged. So that was 47 Meters Down Uncaged. I did not love that film, like I said, but... It's time to get into the Blu-ray of the week. So this Blu-ray of the week is brought to you by Shock Entertainment's Cult Cinema, uh, who sent me a copy of Videodrome, the 1983 David Cronenberg classic. Um, I've left a link down below under the episode in the description for you guys to pick this one up on Blu-ray or DVD or however you see fit. Um, Preferably Blu-ray because I think you get a little more value for your Blu-rays, but it depends on what format you watch your films on. Um, like I said, this is written and directed by David Cronenberg and stars James Wood, uh, Sonia Smits and Debbie Harry and follows Max Wren, who is the president of Channel 83 Civic TV, a small television station on the UHF dial. He defends his programming of largely X-rated shows, which depicts graphic sex and extreme violence as a pure matter of economic survival as a small station. Behind closed doors, in specific company, he would admit that he enjoys such programming, but as president, will stay away from associated activities that may be dangerous for him in his purchase. His current girlfriend, radio personality Nikki Brand, who he met on television talk show, is sexually aroused by light um, mutilation on her person that despite or because her radio show is like an open-air crisis hotline, on that same talk show, the other guest via video feed was Professor Brian Oblivion, uh, solely his stage name, who believes that television and video broadcasts will one day overtake the world as reality, which may make Max's programming in combination more dangerous in Max's search for the next big thing in like programming. Um, this is a film that I was familiar with, but I actually hadn't seen it in its entirety until this Blu-ray release, and I'm happy I got to see it. It is a part of the Criterion Collection, um, which, for those who don't know, the Criterion Collection is a collection of fantastic films, essentially. Um, it is a film that, upon its release, didn't receive great criticism. Um, it was criticised pretty heavily for its use of violence and... Um, use of effects which Cronenberg of course is now prolific for if you haven't seen The Fly do yourselves a favor it is a fantastic film Uh, The History of Violence another film that he directed uh, doesn't have great effects but is a great film Uh, Cronenberg is just a fantastic filmmaker so if you haven't seen some of his other works definitely go and check him out but 
Videodrome is such a bizarre film, but socially it is still relevant today, and I think they're the best kinds of films. For a film to be almost 40 years old and still possess the same qualities and, I suppose, uh, themes as what Videodrome does, I, I think it's quite remarkable. And James Wood sells the role uh, of Max Wren, um, a, a character type that um, Cronenberg uses quite well, in, quite well, um, that uses he uses well in his films, uh, is the idea of a man who is obsessed with his work, uh, I suppose, and obsessed with his habits and obsessed with his hobbies. And uh, he conveys that quite well here. And Woods is fantastic as Max Wren. Um, I'm not a huge James Woods fan. I have seen a few of his films here and there. Um, I think he's a great entertainer, but as an actor, he's never really sold me. But I do think Videodrome is probably his best performance, um, best performance I've seen of him. Um, and I think that Cronenberg directs the hell out of him here. As far as the Blu-ray goes, we don't have uh, any special features, but we do have a very good-looking Blu-ray. Uh, one thing that Cinema Cult and Shock Entertainment do very well with their Blu-ray releases is they make the film look exactly the way that it was made to look back in the day. Um, it's It's printed the way that it was initially intended, and I think that is something that's very rare. Um, if Quentin Tarantino could see it, I'm sure he would be utterly amazed and very happy with the transfer. Um, I think it looks great. It does have um, some um, cinema grain on the on the disc. We do have a very old-looking film, but it is a film that, like I said, is almost 40 years old. So I think that the transfer works for what uh, the film is, and I really am happy that Cinema Cult are putting out titles like this. Um, yeah, it, it is such a great film. Um, like I said, the performances are fantastic. Cronenberg's direction is awesome. Um, very well done by him. And I just thoroughly enjoy the way that this film deals with these themes because these themes are still relevant today. We have an issue with the media and the way that the media conveys certain, certain stories, certain aspects of society. And I think the way that it's handled here is very respectful. Um, and something that's done... Um, in a way that doesn't feel like it is manipulated by the media as well, which is such an absurd thing to say. But um, we get a, a story here that feels like it's very relevant, but also very, um, I, I, I suppose, very untouched. It, it, it's it's pure. It's what it needs to be to tell this story. And I think Universal Pictures did the right thing by letting Cronenberg direct um, his material. Um, as grotesque as some of his effects may be, um, it definitely is more, I suppose, more relevant, and I think it gives vision to what Cronenberg has written here. Um, and my verdict for Videodrome, like I said, Videodrome is a classic, and thanks to Shock Entertainment, it is now restored in 2K, glorious 2K, um, that has never looked at, um, any better in, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm very happy to have this Blu-ray as a part of my collection. Uh, as a film, I would give Videodrome a 9 out of 10, um, and as a Blu-ray release, I'll give it a 9 out of 10 as well. I don't think it's perfect. I think I would have liked to have seen a few special features um, featured on the Blu-ray. But as we know, Cinema Cult don't necessarily do that. It's more of just capturing that film for you to view. Um, and if you want to see special features for Videodrome, you can go uh, onto YouTube. You can see the audio commentary on YouTube and you can see interviews with the cast and crew. Um, but I think as far as just seeing the film, in its purest print, um, this is probably the best release 
I have seen. Um, I don't have access to the Criterion Collection, of course, which would be the best edition of the film, but if you're Australian and you want to watch uh, Videodrome, this is definitely the best place to do it. And like I said, yeah, it's a 9 out of 10 uh, as a film and as a Blu-ray release. So thank you again to Shock Entertainment. If you want to pick up the copy of this film below, I have like left a link straight to Shock Entertainment's website. Um, and yeah, that would be greatly appreciated if you pick it up and I would be too. Um, support Shock Entertainment because they're putting out great releases for the Cinema Cult Collection and it's fantastic because not enough of this is released um, for us and our viewing pleasure. And as a collector, I'm very happy that uh, Cinema Cult are doing what they're doing because, yeah, it makes uh, me very happy as a collector. Um, but yeah, that brings this week's episode to a close. So thank you all for listening. Um, definitely go and see Dr. Sleep. Um, avoid 47 meters down uncaged like the plague but if you do want a good laugh then go and see it and yeah pick up Videodrome on Blu-ray like I said the link is down below if you haven't already uh, subscribe to the podcast and rate it down below and keep those mailbag questions coming to ozmoviegeek at gmail.com I do have some but I don't have enough to be using them um, as frequently as what I have. So I'm storing them up to do them maybe every second week. I'll do a question. Um, but yeah, please keep them coming. Uh, also, send me any stories or anything you want to talk about. The mailbag's a great place to reach me. Um, you can also message me on Facebook or Instagram or whatever way is the best way for you to contact me. But yeah, that brings this week's episode to a close. Uh, thank you all for listening. And until next time, peace out. Peace out.